Please pray with me as we open God's word together this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're finally out of January 2023. Yes, applause needed. Um, It was a month which had its ups and downs, but overall, on a national scale, we'd have to file it away as yet another terrible month of brutality. January had more news stories about violent death than there were days in the month, including five more mass shootings, And, of course, the awful murder of Tyree Nichols at the hands of Memphis police. And we cry, how long, O Lord? We wonder, does God even care? Does he see what's happening? We live in such dark times. I'm going to tell a story that's quite dark. And if you have uh, uh, children or sensitive hearers, uh, you might want to take them for a bathroom break at this point. Um, because I'm close friends with a woman who was the victim of a terror attack more than a decade ago. Uh, She and a friend were out hiking in the woods, um, and they met and were confronted by two men, two strangers. um, And in an act of religious racism, the men drew knives and stabbed the two women repeatedly. And my friend lay down on the ground and played dead while she listened as her companion died. But after the attackers left, she miraculously managed to get up and get help. She was rushed to the hospital. She had a dozen deep knife wounds. But amazingly, after several surgeries, she survived. And ever since, she's traveled the world sharing her story. She's a believer in Jesus, and she often speaks to Christian groups. And Christians come up and want to talk to her afterward, and they never know what to say. And they say all kinds of clumsy things. And one of the most common things they say is, God loves you. And to that, my friend replies, I don't need to know that God loves me. I need to know that God is angry. If God saw what happened to me and he's not angry, then I don't want to know him. And I think maybe all of us here today need to know, to one degree or another, that God is angry. Whether for the harm that has been done to us personally or for the terrible harm that is done to God's image bearers around the world every single day. We need to know that God is angry for Tyree Nichols and for the victims of Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay and Yakima, Washington and all the rest. Because if he's not angry, then I wonder if we would want to know him either. Because if a father watches someone harm his child and that father is not mad, then there's something wrong with that father, isn't there? Um, He needs to comfort and bind up his child, yes, but then he needs to confront their attacker. And God calls himself our father. So today we're going to turn back to the Gospel of John, look at chapter 2. It's uh, page 887 of the Church Bibles, John chapter 2. 887. Last week, Peter led us through the first 12 verses of this chapter, and we met party Jesus, who turned water into wine, so much wine that it might have filled 900 bottles. One of you did the calculation after service. Um, But here today, in the second half of chapter 2, we meet angry Jesus, who is ejecting the tradesmen from the temple. And whilst Dana's right to say this wasn't a tantrum, I'm not afraid to say that in this story, Jesus was hot, 
hopping mad. This is Jesus mean and wild. And in fact, I need it to be so. So today we're going to finish John chapter 2 in three parts. First, the anger of the Christ against injustice. Second, the authority of Jesus to be angry. And then third, we'll talk about the anger of his people. So first, let's look at the anger of the Christ against injustice. John chapter 2 verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John sets the scene of this story in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and that means it was a crowd scene, right? Jewish religion centered on the temple in Jerusalem, the one place on earth where sacrifices could be offered to God, and all the Jewish men in whatever countries they were living were commanded in the law of Moses to present themselves at the temple in Jerusalem three times every year for the festival of Passover in early spring, again at Pentecost in early summer, and again at the Feast of Tabernacles in mid-fall, three times every year. And some of the Jewish uh, faithful would go a fourth time around the winter solstice for the Feast of Dedication, which we now call Hanukkah. And Jesus was one of those, as we learn in John chapter 10. So, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for this Passover in obedience to the law of Moses. And this begins a pattern that we see played out all through his life, that Jesus was a faithful Jewish man. Not just a biological Jewish man, and not just a citizen of Israel, but faithful in every particular to the law of Moses. In fact, the most faithful, obedient, pure, and perfect Jewish man who ever lived. And so, of course, he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And there he would have rubbed shoulders with most of the faithful Jewish men in the world at the time. The population of Jerusalem swelled to three or four times its normal level during the feasts. Every guest house was crammed to bursting, and the streets were full of languages. And busiest of all would be the temple, where the people crowded in to observe the Passover itself, and also, while they were in town, to do whatever other business they had to do in the temple, like make sacrifices for sin, or offerings for cleansing, or thanksgivings for the birth of a child, all of which required animal sacrifice. So a great quantity of blood was spilled at the Passover, reminding us of the great quantity of wine that was created in the previous story. The temple required a lot of animals. So, where were these animals going to come from? The travelers were invited and always welcome to bring their own animals when they came to town, but many of them had a very long journey on foot for several days, and carrying a lamb or a pigeon with them the whole way was pretty impractical, so why not just buy the animals when they arrived on the other end? So Jerusalem realized that it had a market for selling vast quantities of animals for the feasts. And of course, these animals were especially high quality, fit for the altar, and they came at a premium price. So they cornered the whole city market, and they put it right in the outer court of the temple itself, in the court of the Gentiles. Oh dear, but now we have a problem, don't we? Because now the people would have to bring into the temple their dirty Roman money. The face of Caesar? On coins traded in the temple? No, we can't stand for that. So let's have a whole new currency to solve this. A temple coin that you spend in the temple. Kind of a Disney token. Uh, and it has the added bonus that then people will have to bring in their money and change it here at our money changers at whatever rate that we decide uh, that they need to change it. So 
This became the first century reality for Jewish peasants living outside Jerusalem. Three times a year, you'd sell what property you could to gather some Roman currency. Then you'd travel to the temple and change it for just a very meager quantity of temple coins, which you'd then take next door to the pigeon seller and to buy a wildly overpriced bird to offer to your God in sacrifice. So we see that the sacrificial system of Moses had by the first century become a total racket. The Sadducees who ran the temple were profiteering from God's commandment and they all lived in very fine Jerusalem homes, while the tradesmen, under their full view and protection, fleeced the poor and paid them handsomely. So the religious leaders were profiting from the piety of the people and, of course, the ones hardest hit were the poor. And that makes God mad. You want to know the quickest way to make God mad? Fleece the poor, especially if you can fleece them for their piety. It's comparable in history to the system of indulgences in the medieval Catholic Church, where people paid the church to have their sins forgiven. It's also comparable to the modern televangelists who sell grace for money and fly around in private jets. It makes God hopping mad. Watch out for the whip of cords. So, Jesus goes into the temple in the middle of thousands of people, and he just tears the whole system down. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Or his words are even stronger in the other gospels. You have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You've got to love this. This is Jack Reacher, Jesus. Uh, fierce, wild, and unstoppable. This is the modern equivalent of millions of dollars worth of trade buying and bleating its way out of the temple gates and just rolling around on the floor. This is so deeply satisfying. The structures of greed and wickedness just collapse like a house of cards. This fiasco was watched by hundreds of outraged Sadducees who would no longer be vacationing to Mallorca on their private yachts, plus the fully armed temple guard who for some reason stood their ground and did absolutely nothing to stop the total collapse of their entire economy. Jesus alone called out their wicked scheme to turn the temple into a den of thieves, and he put an end to it by himself with a whip of cords. Jesus completely Turn the tables on injustice. And so will Jesus by himself do to the entire world on the last day. Jesus will clean house and bring all the walls of wickedness a tumbling down. O oh Lord, haste the day. In verse 17, his disciples remembered the saying, zeal for your house will consume me. And we remember what we learned from Isaiah chapter 9 at the end of last year. When God brings justice to his world, he does it with great zeal, with great feeling, with passion, and with unstoppable energy. So that, friends, is the anger of the Christ against injustice. And now second, what was the authority of Jesus to be angry? In verse 18, the stunned people ask Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, think about it. At this point, the tradesmen themselves have all gone. 
the Sadducees and the temple guard have remained silent, and they're sliding away to hide. So the people who are left to ask this question are just the ordinary Jewish people who are gathered for the feast, the peasants and the pious worshippers themselves, for almost all of whom this was quite a good day. Um, this was the site of a long-standing injustice that no one had been brave enough to challenge, being dismantled by a single man in a single hour. And a lot of them would have been smiling, broadly, although still a little bit stunned at the aggression and at its chaotic aftermath. But they need to know, is this guy just another angry zealot? Is he just a terrorist? Or could he actually be the real deal? Could we be looking at the Messiah here? His claim to be the Messiah is already pretty strong. He acted righteously with a fairly supernatural lack of opposition. He called the temple my father's house, and then he backed that up by taking its abuse personally. So this guy was really looking quite a lot like the real thing, but some of them still needed more convincing to be sure, so they asked Jesus for another sign. And I think we should read this question as an honest question, not a, not a hostile question. It's coming from people who actually want to believe. And before we examine the rather cryptic answer that Jesus gives them, let's glance ahead to verse 23 of chapter 2, because it tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. One of those signs was surely the cleansing of the temple itself. That really got people's attention. Uh, and, and John tells us that many of the people who saw that uh, believed in Jesus. But also, he says in the same verse, that Jesus did end up doing other signs too. It's signs plural. So he did answer their earnest request. But initially, back in verse 19, Jesus gives them a strange and cryptic response. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is a clue to the main sign that Jesus is legit. The sign to end all signs was his own resurrection, and that was still to come. John explains in verse 22 that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John and the other disciples understood this saying in the end. But notice that it took all of them until after it had happened to understand it. No one who listened to Jesus saying it at the time understood it. Understanding what he was saying would have been impossible. And therefore, we've got to conclude two things. First, that Jesus knew in advance that he would die and rise again on the third day. Since this is what happened to him, his knowing that ahead of time proves that he was a genuine prophet operating in the power of God. But the second realization we have is that Jesus gave this cryptic answer not for the benefit of anybody who was there, not for the benefit of his immediate audience, but for posterity, for the future audience, first for his own disciples who would understand later, but then also for us, along with everyone else who would read about it in John's gospel already knowing the future. So, as you read this little verse, do you see Jesus breaking the fourth wall in this story? Because you're watching him talk to the crowd at Passover in Jerusalem around 30 AD. But he's not really talking to them at all, is he? He's talking to you. He sees you watching him through the screen of your imagination. And he looks straight at you. And he winks at you. And he says something to his audience that only you will understand. It will completely baffle them. You now know the main sign. 
You know that he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as he said. Can you draw all the conclusions that reality proves in this story? It proves, first, that Jesus' own body was, in fact, as he said, a temple, meaning a house for God. The reason it could rise from the dead was the power of God to raise it, and God raised it to vindicate every word that Jesus had said, including the saying here that his own body was God's house, meaning that Jesus truly was God in the flesh, meaning further that he had every right to cleanse his own temple building, to tidy up his own religion when he saw it being mishandled, meaning also that his judgment was pure and perfect and based on all the facts and unclouded by bias. When Jesus drove people out with a whip of cords, they fully deserved it. It was an action that was completely and perfectly just, which is a fact that few who saw it would have doubted. So the immediate audience could never have understood the cryptic saying, but from our historical perspective, it does actually answer the question they were asking. On what authority do you do such things? Because I'm God. (laughs) Because this is my house. Um, So now we know that Jesus got angry when he saw injustice, particularly when the poor and the powerless were being exploited. And we've seen evidence that Jesus was and is God in the flesh. So we know for sure that God, our maker and father, gets angry at injustice. I can look my friend in the eye who suffered that terrorist attack and tell her, God, your father, was angry when that happened. And I know this for sure. So that's the anger of the Christ and his authority to be angry. But now I want to close by thinking about the anger of his people. We need to ask, does it follow from this that we too and other Christians have a right to be angry? That we can use anger profitably as our Lord Jesus did. And as a lot of the other leaders in the Bible did. We read about Saul in our Old Testament lesson today being filled with the Holy Spirit and being provoked to anger. It also happened with David, and with Nehemiah, and with Paul in the New Testament. I do think Jesus proves in this passage that there is such a thing as righteous anger, and we see that he himself acted righteously out of righteous anger. But I want to sound a strong note of caution before we take that and run with it. Um, There's a lot of caution about it in this very passage. Because if we keep going to the end of the story, in verse 23, many people believe in Jesus. But then comes verse 24, and it says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's think about this. What would it have meant for Jesus to entrust himself to those followers? Surely, it would have meant that he would let them set the agenda for his ministry. And what would their agenda for him have been? The obvious answer to that is that they wanted to make Jesus their king. They believed that he was the promised Messiah, and they wanted him enthroned and armied and powerful. They saw him cleanse the temple, and they liked it. They wanted more of that, please, Jesus. Let's take this justice campaign national, maybe even international. Why did they like it? Um, What did they like about it? Surely it's the same reason that we would have liked it. Because they were angry too. And they thought, here's a guy who gets us, who feels the way we feel, and is doing something about it. Let's follow this guy. Let's make Jesus our king. 
And that then is precisely what our Lord Jesus does not trust. Precisely what he won't let happen. He will not be promoted to king by stirring up a wave of public zeal. He will not be the king of the zealots. You know, if Jesus had wanted to have been king of the zealots, he really could have done it right here, couldn't he? He was at Jerusalem at Passover in full view of all the righteous men of Israel. He'd won a massive victory over the corrupt establishment through righteous outrage. This is just the kind of thing that can kickstart a revolution. But in fact, it doesn't go anywhere from here because a revolution is precisely not what Jesus wanted to start. Because the strategies and passions of men were not the answer. These would not save the world. And Jesus' own strategy was radically different. He was planning to die for sin. To die in a way that took the full anger of God into his own body. The full anger of God. The vast, immeasurable ocean of fury that God has stored up in heaven over every lost life, every act of brutality, every lie, every theft, every wicked scheme since the dawn of time, condensed down into a single livid cup, a chalice of lava-hot incandescent rage. The Son of God, in the agony of the cross, drank that down to its very last dregs. This is God's answer to all the righteous anger of heaven and earth. It is met and it is conquered with the full force of his own love. It is punished in the Son of God on the cross and it is spent. An amnesty is offered to all people who have ever been born. And the seeds of that great plan are sown right here in John chapter 2, both in the way that Jesus rejects the plans that angry zealots would make and in the way he prophesies his own death and resurrection. And so his anger at the temple racket becomes, in his own life, a one-off. It stands as a great exception to his general pattern. He does rebuke the religious leaders a few more times, using some strong language, But he never again makes a whip of cords or lifts a hand against anyone. Instead, Jesus' hands are gentle, lifting a young girl from her deathbed, touching lepers in blessing, smearing mud on the eyes of blind men, and carrying young children. Enough to say that Jesus can be Jack Reacher when he has to, and he will be again, but his preferred mode, his true nature, is much more Mother Teresa. And that's the mode his people are called to follow most of the time. His anger is righteous because he's sinless, but our anger tends to be untrustworthy because we're fallen. Our anger is all mixed in with selfishness, ignorance, bias, and prejudice, and it's never purely righteous. So I want us to listen to the strong notes of caution the Bible sounds about human anger. God says to Cain in Genesis 4, do you do well to be angry? In Proverbs 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Again, in Proverbs 29, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
And James says in chapter 1, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a pretty unified voice on this subject. Human anger is generally bad. It easily causes trouble, and it rarely, if ever, does good. It's not that there's no place for righteous anger, but be so careful. We live in such an angry culture, don't we? Most of the violence that we saw last month was motivated by anger. And I want us to ask ourselves if more anger is really what our country needs. So if you find yourself angry, I recommend these steps to avoid sin. The first step is to get yourself fully away from other people. <laughs> don't speak to anyone in anger, don't write to anyone in anger, and don't touch anyone in anger. Get away from people and go to God. Second, tell God your complaint. If it is a just complaint, then know that God is angry too, even more than you are. Let God be angry for you. Let him handle safely the anger that in your hands is dangerous. Now, it could be that your anger is at God himself, and, and that's okay. God can handle that. Better that you send it to him than, that, than you send it to anyone else or try to keep it bottled up inside you. But remember the truth that God has far more right to be angry with you than you could ever have to be angry with him. He has given and you have taken. He has asked and you have refused. He has died while you lived, and his cause is the one that would win in any court of justice. And yet, God has put away his anger at you. He has spent it fully at the cross, and he looks on you now with nothing but a smile. Given this... Can you not find it in yourself to put away your anger at him, which was never righteous anyway? And instead, will you let him heal you and take away from you the anger that destroys you and replace it with true and lasting peace? Peace in the knowledge that he will keep the universe just. He will hold all of it to account. And then finally, if we have properly dealt with our anger at God's throne, then we can act if the Lord calls us to. Outrage at an injustice is a powerful motivator to do good. And of course, I don't want to stop it from doing the good it might do. We find a good model in Nehemiah chapter 5, where Nehemiah hears of the poor being oppressed. And in verse 6, he said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I pondered them in my heart and I brought charges against the oppressors. Uh, that middle step, I pondered them in my heart. I prayed. I took it to God. It's very, very important. So I plead for us to do it this way because I believe this way is better, that it leads to a finer and more lasting work if we wait until the anger itself has passed so that we can operate in the same direction out of love and joy and gentleness. These tools our tools that God has put in our hands that really do consistently heal the harms and redress the wrongs and don't cause additional damage. So, in conclusion, God is angry at the daily injustice in the world and God will act. Let that calm and reassure you as you step forward to serve him. Amen.